Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our priceless treasure. We thank you now that we come to your Holy Word. And as we open it now, we do pray that you would speak to us, that you would reveal to us yourself through your Son. And we pray that you would give us the eyes to see, that you would give us the minds to understand and the hearts to receive this word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and that we would respond with faith and with love and with hands to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 5, which we read earlier, you'll find this in your pew Bibles on page 742. This morning, with Mark Bube unable to join us, I'm bringing a sermon that I had planned for tonight from my regular evening service from the book of Daniel. So far in our study of the book, in the first three chapters, we saw three salvation stories. In chapter four, we saw God humble a proud pagan king, which also led to his salvation, a fourth salvation story. Now, in chapter 5, we will see a repeat of many of the elements that have come before in the book, but also a few things that are new. There's a new proud pagan king that needs to be humbled. There's a new revelation from God, which all the wise men of Babylon cannot interpret, but Daniel can. Daniel will be rewarded for his work, and the prophecy will be immediately fulfilled. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who was ultimately brought to repentance and salvation, this chapter ends in the judgment of God, leading to the death of King Belshazzar. And not only is the king killed, but the entire Babylonian empire is brought to an end, and it is succeeded by the Medo-Persian empire, led by Cyrus the Great, or as he is called here, Darius the Mede. This chapter is... God's message containing many warnings for you, God's people, this morning. Right on the surface, we see the danger of pride, of idolatry, of drunkenness, and of desecrating that which is holy. But more deeply, we see the danger of ignoring God's prophetic word, that which is spoken to you directly, but also... Belshazzar had ignored the warning that had come to him through his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. By the time this second warning had come, his time was already at an end. And so my question to you this morning is this, have you been ignoring God's warnings to you? Perhaps there are warnings concerning the themes of this very passage, warnings about pride or idolatry. Or perhaps God has been convicting you and warning you about other sins in your life that you need to repent of. I don't know what those might be. Whatever the warning, the message to you this morning is this. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ that you might find grace, forgiveness, and new and eternal life. A look at our passage this morning under three headings. First, Belshazzar's drunken feast. 
Second, Daniel's speech and its interpretation. And third, application. So first, we have Belshazzar's drunken feast. We can actually date this chapter and its events quite exactly because we know the date of the fall of Babylon to the armies of Cyrus of Persia based on extra-biblical history. The city fell on exactly October 12th, 539 B.C., So depending on exactly when midnight was, I would likely place this feast on the evening of October 11th, 539, and then running through the night into the morning. The Persians had defeated the Babylonian army at the city of Opus earlier in the month, and then they had taken the city of Sippar without battle the day before on October 10th. Now their forces are drawing near to the capital city of Babylon. Let's consider the main character of the chapter, King Belshazzar. King Nebuchadnezzar the Great died in 562 BC after about 40 years on the throne, and now it's about 20 years later. Nebuchadnezzar was truly the force behind the Babylonian Empire, and after his death, the empire did not maintain its strength or cohesion. There were three successors with short reigns, with much political intrigue. Then in 555, Nabonidus rose to the throne, and Belshazzar was his son. Now, for religious reasons, Nabonidus left the capital for ten years. He was an absent king, and he entrusted his kingship to his son, Belshazzar, from 550 to 540. That's right on the eve of this, this chapter. BC, and he returned only to lead his armies uh, as the Medes and the Persians were attacking. So, the time of Daniel chapter 5, both Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar were ruling Babylon as co regents, co kings over the empire. This explains why Belshazzar offers to make Daniel the third ruler in the kingdom. He couldn't make him the second because Belshazzar was the second ruler after his father. It's also worth noting here that for some time, liberal scholars rejected the historicity of Daniel because the existence of Belshazzar was unknown outside of the biblical record. They said Nabonidus was king when Babylon fell. Who's Belshazzar? It's all changed with the number of archaeological discoveries that filled out the, biblical re- the historical record. This not only vindicates the historicity of the biblical account, it also undermines the late date for the writing of Daniel, which liberal scholars still desperately cling to, despite the overwhelming evidence against it. Now, returning to the text, we read in verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. We aren't told the exact reason for Belshazzar's drunken feast, but it's likely he knew that the Persian army was at his doorstep. This was likely his last night as king. And so he wasn't, and so he was literally fulfilling the biblical saying from Isaiah twenty-two thirteen: Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's also possible. He wanted to rally the leaders of the troops before a final battle to hold the gates of the city. Except, we also know the army met no resistance when they came to Babylon. The gates of the city were thrown wide open to them, and the invaders were 
welcomed in. Perhaps that welcome was even a result of the prophecy in this chapter. We don't know. But when Belshazzar tasted such fine wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver which King Nebuchadnezzar had plundered from the temple in Jerusalem be brought to use for his feast. Then according to verse 4, they go on to praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They're turning aside from worshiping the creator to worshiping his creation. Deaf, mute, and dumb idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Not only are they using the Lord's holy vessels for mundane purposes such as feasting, they are using them to worship false pagan deities. And this, this is the highest sacrilege, a desecration of God's holy vessels. And in effect, they are spitting in the eye of the one true God. Belshazzar is provoking the Lord to wrath and judgment, daring him to respond. Will Belshazzar's gods of gold and silver be able to save him from the Lord's fury against him? You certainly know from your experience that people blaspheme against the Lord. They use the Lord's name in vain all the time. And the Lord usually doesn't take any sort of immediate action. Of course, the third commandment also makes it clear. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, Exodus 27. So those who blaspheme the name of the Lord aren't going to get away with it in the end. But in this case, the Lord does respond. And so we read in verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. This is where we get the saying, the handwriting was on the wall, a foretelling of a coming calamity. We're not told if it was the hand of an angel, or even the hand of God, the hand of the pre-incarnate Christ. We're only told that the king could see the hand. It's not clear if there were other witnesses. But his is the only reaction that's recorded in verse 6. Then the king's color was changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. This is a response of absolute and utter terror. The phrase which the ESV translates, his limbs gave way, is more literally translated, the knots of his loins were loosed, or in other words, in his fear, he soiled himself. Along with this, we're told his, the blood drains from his face, his thoughts raised, his knees are knocking together. He has completely lost control of his body. Absolute terror. When he's able to regain control, he summons his wise men to read and interpret the writing promising the third highest position in the kingdom. But history repeats itself. The wise men are, again, unable to make sense of what God has revealed. And this leaves only, only leaves the king and his noblemen even more perplexed. But then, in verse 10, the queen enters. 
Since verse 2 told us that the king's wives and concubines were already present, this is most likely the queen mother, either the wife of Nabonidus or possibly even the still living widow of Nebuchadnezzar. So it also explains why she is more familiar with Daniel as she extols his wisdom and recalls his previous successful interpretation of dreams. By this time, Daniel would be an old man, about 80 years old. He's probably semi-retired, and that's why he was no longer overseeing the wise men of Babylon, and also why he didn't come when they were summoned. But as you'll see, his faculties are not diminished, and he has not lost his boldness. The queen mother praises Daniel's wisdom and abilities, and in fact states plainly, he will be able to give the interpretation. And so on his mother's encouragement, Belshazzar summons Daniel. This brings us to part two, Daniel's speech and interpretation. Belshazzar addresses Daniel with a mixed attitude. On the one hand, he praises him, saying he has heard of his wisdom, that he has in him the spirit of God. On the other hand, he reminds him that he is a Judean exile, essentially a captive. He remains skeptical that he will be able to interpret the handwriting where all the others have failed. But Daniel responds with boldness, first refusing the king's gift. He most likely already knows the kingdom's about to fall, and so these gifts will not profit him and may, in fact, endanger him when there is a change in who is in charge. Still, he agrees to give the interpretation at no charge. At first, he recounts the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's read again this speech in verse, verses 18 to 21. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he kill, and whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humble. When his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. His speech reminds us of many of the events of the previous four chapters. Nebuchadnezzar was truly a great king in terms of his worldly power and the way he had built up the Babylonian Empire. People of all nations trembled before him. His ability to choose whom he would kill and whom he would keep alive reminds us of his rash decision first to kill all the wise men of Babylon and then later to spare them after Daniel had saved the day. It also reminds us of how he had thrown Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the burning, fiery furnace, although they were then saved by the Lord. His choosing whom to humble and whom to raise up also reminds us of him raising up Daniel and his three friends into their exalted positions within his court. But Daniel also makes clear, all these things were given to him 
by the Lord. Daniel then recounts Nebuchadnezzar's humbling from chapter 4 and how in the end he recognized that the Most High God rules over all. Then he goes on and he contrasts the way Nebuchadnezzar was humbled before the Lord and contrasts this to the pride of Belshazzar. Continuing to read in verse 22, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. And the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all, all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel's message to Belshazzar is that the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar was not just for Nebuchadnezzar. It was meant to be a lesson for all, and in particular for his grandson, Belshazzar. Recall that chapter 4 was a pro- public proclamation written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, and it was distributed to all the people of the empire. Even if Belshazzar was young at the time, he certainly had read it and he knew its message well. But he had not taken it to heart. He had not humbled himself, but rather he had exalted himself in his pride, and as Daniel says, he had exalted himself against the Lord of heaven. He had not worshipped the Lord, the Most High God, but rather had desecrated the Lord's holy vessels and even used them in his worship of pagan deities. Gods of gold and silver, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And now the Lord's judgment on him for his pride had come. And Daniel comes to his interpretation of the writing on the wall. Let's read verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Here it's worth pausing to ask, why was this writing so difficult for the wise men to interpret, and yet Daniel was able to interpret it so easily? Of course, the simple answer is that God revealed the interpretation to him by the Holy Spirit. And that's true. It also helps that Aramaic, like Hebrew, was written with consonants only and without vowels. And so there were multiple possible ways of reading the letters and the words. It's also possible that the words were written without spaces, which only increases the number of possible interpretations. The greater difficulty is this. The four words, mene, mene, tekel, and parson, can be interpreted as either monetary terms, uh, as nouns, or they can be interpreted as verbs, and then the verbs can be taken as active or passive, as finite verbs, or as participles. Now, if you don't understand all those grammatical terms, that's okay. The point is there are several different options, and those only multiply when you consider all the combinations. And the final word, parson, could also refer to the Persians, which was certainly significant with the Persians on their doorstep. But what was the significance? 
Did it mean victory or defeat? The wise men very well may have been able to read the words or to add it up as a monetary sum, but that doesn't give you an interpretation. What Daniel was able to do was to give a meaningful interpretation and to apply it to the king's concrete situation. So now let's look at Daniel's interpretation, verse 26. This is the interpretation of the matter. Manet, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. In interpreting the first word, Daniel is taking Manet as a verb, meaning to number. He's also taking as doubled, Manet, Manet, doubled for emphasis. So he says, Manet, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. In verse 27, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Here Daniel is taking the second word, Tekel, also as a verb. This verb, depending on how it is vocalized, can mean either to weigh or to be found light in the weighing, to be found wanting. The idea is that when Belshazzar is weighed in the balances, his payment has come up short, and so there will be consequences. And Daniel uses both of these meanings in his interpretations. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And we have verse 28. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Here we see Daniel first simplifies the, per, the plural parson from the writing on the wall to the singular Paris in verse 28. He then interprets this word in two ways. First, he takes it as a verb, meaning to be divided. Second, he interprets it as a proper noun referring to the Persians. Now, you can see the similarity between Paris and Persian in English, but the similarity in Aramaic is even greater. The three consonants are identical, with only a slight difference in the vowels. And so Daniel gives the interpretation now as a consequence flowing from the previous two verses. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. From this simple handwriting of four words, we get an interpretation that is clearly a prophecy of judgment from the Lord, not only against King Belshazzar, but against the entire Babylonian Empire. The Lord had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream in chapter 2 that the head of gold representing the Babylonian Empire would be succeeded by another kingdom, the chests and arms of silver. Now, the time for the fulfillment of that prophetic dream had come. And despite this prophecy of coming doom, and even though Daniel had previously refused these rewards, Belshazzar clothes Daniel in purple, places a chain of gold around his neck, and declares that he is the third ruler in the kingdom. And perhaps Daniel had changed his mind. Perhaps he knew it didn't make a difference. The kingdom would soon fall. It also seems that Belshazzar had accepted his fate. And perhaps that's confirmed by the fact that the city fell without a battle. Either way, we don't have to wait long for the prophecy to be fulfilled. We read in verse 30, That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. 
And we don't know exactly how Belshazzar was killed, whether it was a political assassination by his own people or an execution by the Medes and Persians. We just know there wasn't any actual fighting in the city. However, in this context, it's clear that it's a judgment from the Lord for his pride and his pagan idolatry. Even though he accepted the interpretation of the prophecy and even rewarded Daniel, we see no sign of actual repentance. He does not bow down and worship the Lord as his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar did. Also, it's easy to miss it, but in verse 31, we have one more fulfillment of the writing on the wall. I said earlier that the words can also be interpreted as a sum of money. A tekel is a Babylonian unit of money, equivalent to the Hebrew shekel. One mina would be 60 tekels, or one mene mina, 60 tekels plus one tekel, and one parson would be two half tekels, adding up to 62 tekels, or shekels. And so Daniel closes the chapter noting that Darius the Mede was about 62 years old, when he received the kingdom. At the end of chapter 6, Daniel records, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. I believe this statement reveals that Darius and Cyrus are the same person, Darius being the Median throne name of Cyrus the Great. It also just so happens that we know from extra-biblical history that Cyrus would have been right around 62 years old, when Babylon fell in 539 B.C. The liberal critics doubt the historicity of Daniel, but it stands up to all their scrutiny because it is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. Not only is every statement a fact, but every prophecy is fulfilled because God is the author of history, knowing the end from the beginning, working all things for his greater glory. All glory be to God alone. It brings us to our third point this morning, application. One central theme of this chapter is God's judgment. We see how he brings his judgment against Belshazzar for his pride and his idolatry. Also, we see how Daniel could call the death of Belshazzar God's judgment because God had revealed this to him. But how do we know today if a particular disaster is God's judgment? We know that God is sovereign over all things, and all things, both good and bad, ultimately come from him. But that doesn't necessarily give us the key to interpreting all the situations that we pass through in our lives. We know that sometimes the wicked prosper for a time, but we also know they are standing on slippery ground. We also know that the Lord disciplines his children as a loving father. And so a painful trial is often loving discipline from the hand of our Heavenly Father, meant to purify us and cause us to grow. We also have the very difficult lesson of the book of Job. After Job loses everything good in his life, including his own health, Job's miserable comforters tell him over and over again, that he is suffering because he must have committed some grievous sin. His suffering must be God's judgment. But Job responds saying that he is innocent of any wrongdoing. In the end, Job is vindicated. 
although he is also humbled and silenced before God's presence. In a similar vein, when Jesus' disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. John 9, 2 and 3. Jesus' disciples want to say that blindness must be a punishment, it must be a judgment for someone's sin. And Jesus says, that's not the case. The purpose of the blindness was so that God might be glorified when Jesus went on to heal the man who was born blind. Even in this, in these examples, I don't know that all my questions are answered or that all the mysteries of God's providence are solved. We do know that God is in control, that God is good, that he works all things for the good of those who love him and all for his greater glory. At the end of the day, we must confess with Paul in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. But getting back to the question, what then is to be our response when suffering comes upon us? How do we interpret it? We don't have modern day prophets today to tell us whether a particular to tell us whether a particular situation is a judgment for God or if it's his loving discipline. And so we must interpret everything through the lens of God's word. Certainly we should remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 13. When he was questioned about some Galileans who were unjustly slaughtered by the Roman governor Pilate, he said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He then brought up others who died in an accident where a tower fell on them. And his message was the same. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' point was that whether... Suffering is caused by your sin, the sin of others, or by natural disaster. There is only one solution, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, for there is salvation in no other name but in Jesus Christ alone. He is the incarnate Son of God, who humbled himself, who took on flesh, who lived a perfect, sinless life, and died in your place on the cross who bore the wrath of God and rose again to new life so that if you repent of your sins and trust in him, you might be forgiven. Repent of your sins and trust in him. Whenever suffering or trials come upon you, certainly it is appropriate to do some measure of self-examination to see and to say, what is the Lord telling me? What is the Lord teaching me? Because there is always sin to be repented of. It's not time to necessarily to question your salvation, but just to examine yourself. Every day we repent. Every day we return to the Lord. For the Christian, we look at, look at uh, the Lord's discipline, most of all, as the Lord's fatherly, loving discipline. And we repent and we trust that the Lord is working all things for our good. 
But in our passage this morning, we not only saw the handwriting on the wall, but we also saw that Belshazzar had ignored the previous warning to him, which had come through the experiences of his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, which were recorded in his proclamation preserved for us in Daniel chapter 4. So Daniel said in chapter, in verse 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. So I ask you this morning, has God been warning you, perhaps of sins or inconsistencies in your life, but you have not heeded his warnings? Perhaps there are lessons you could learn through the lives of others, but you have not taken them to heart. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man who feasts daily and pays no heed to the starving poor man Lazarus lying at his gate. When they both die, Lazarus is comforted in the bosom of Abraham, but the rich man is in torment. When the rich man begs that Lazarus be raised from the dead, to go and to warn his brothers, Abraham responds that they have already received enough warnings. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. My question to you today is, are you heeding the warnings that the Lord has given you? Are they enough for you? Have you heard his word proclaimed this morning? Will you heed it? Will you repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? For he is a good and gracious Savior. He is the only Savior. Repent and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we thank you that you have revealed all of who you are, that you are both a God of love and of justice, that you have so loved us that you sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And we see your love and justice mingled perfectly together on the cross where Jesus, in his love, bore our sins, bore the wrath that we deserved, taking the justice uh, that, we, uh, that we deserve on the cross so that we might be forgiven, and not only that, but be clothed in the perfect robes of his righteousness so that we might inherit eternal life. Our trust is in you this morning so that we might be forgiven. Lord, we thank you for the warnings that we receive in the proclamation of the gospel. May we heed them. May we continually heed them. And even when we pass through great trials and great suffering, may that only prompt us to examine ourselves. And would you convict us by your Holy Spirit. May we heed your warnings and continue to grow in holiness of life. We pray that our lives would not be stagnant, but be continually growing more and more fruitful as you work in us by your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.